Find specifically Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Before we even read the text, I want to just reflect briefly that there's things that the author of Hebrews says are, me- are milk, spiritual milk, things that are um, beginner and often maybe easier to digest and understand. But then he also speaks of solid food or meat. We know meat's a little tougher to chew on. And this morning's sermon's going to be a little bit more meat than we might. Uh, be used to in some morning settings. We're going to dive into some solid food of God's Word. Some would even say this is going to be a sermon full of, uh, to some would be a bad word, the word theology. And I don't want that to ever become a bad word for us because all theology is is simply the knowledge of God. It is to know God, to know who He is, how He works, what it means to know Him and to be in relationship to Him. And all of us, from the moment we begin to talk about God, does some form of theology. And so this morning, we're going to dive into some foundational, but nonetheless solid food of God's Word. So I hope you came ready to have a meal, a spiritual meal together. Look, Isaiah chapter 9. We'll read just verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God. The internet has done us a great disservice in many ways, but the internet has caused us, I believe, to feel a pressure to need to know everything about everything. And y'all can testify, generations that did not have the internet and did not grow up having the internet, you didn't feel that pressure before, did you? There were things you would have probably never known about. Because you just may not have ever been exposed to it. Generations before us never had that sort of pressure. And to be honest, I think that's why many of them might have been happier (laughs) than we are. Because sometimes the more knowledge leads to more misery. Think about it. Because of the internet, right at the touch of our fingers, we can instantly have access to just about any info we want of what's going on in any part of the world. And really look up any subject that we could possibly think about. And because we have the internet, we can read about subjects we're curious about from every angle and every perspective. And because of the internet, the world, with all that it includes, is at your fingertips. And I think we need to consider both what an enormous gift that is, and it really is a gift, but also the cost that we might sacrifice for it. Because when we feel that we can know everything there is to know about everything just because we did some Google searches... We don't often encounter mystery. And friends, faith is filled with mystery. And there are things in life that are mysterious that you aren't going to fully know how fully all of them work together. And in fact, whether we admit it or not, all of our lives have been full of things that are difficult or even impossible to understand, full of mystery. Let me tell you something I can't comprehend. 
NASA reports that there are 200 billion stars in our galaxy alone. That doesn't include the untold numbers of galaxies out there. I cannot, I can apprehend that, meaning I can tell you about it and put it into some formula that you can sort of begin to get your mind around, but we cannot fully comprehend that. We cannot fully comprehend 200 billion suns in just this galaxy alone. I can formulate it, but friends, I can't fully explain it. And friends, If our galaxy has things we cannot comprehend, how much more the one who created our galaxy and all other things? And so, friends, as we dive into week two in a series called A Son Shall Be Given, looking at the four names given here to this child that was going to be born. We looked last week at how he would be called Wonderful Counselor, and this week we'll consider how he would be called Mighty God. We get to marvel at one of the most incredible truths and somewhat mysterious truths of the Christian faith, the incarnation. And the incarnation is the the truth that Jesus has taken on flesh. In fact, that's what the word means, to take on flesh, to take on a body. And Isaiah 9, 6 tells us that a child would be born and that this child would be mighty God. That God would take on flesh and come to dwell with us. And Christians, we believe that God has taken on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And in this act, as we read last week, there's going to bring light. he's going to bring light into darkness. He's going to rescue captives, and he's going to destroy God's enemies. In Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, God promises to come to us as a child, incarnate deity in a manger. To refer to this child as the mighty God in Hebrew is to, is to call him the El Gabor. We see that Jesus is the mighty God. He is the El Gabor. That's what the Hebrew is. And that's to say that Jesus isn't some lesser deity or even some other deity, but rather he is the God of the Old and New Testament. To call him the mighty God is to confess that he is the one true and living God. There is no other Look over, you can flip over just a page or two to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20 to 21. And look what we see there. Look what we see there. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20 and 21. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will will no more lean on him who struck them, but they'll lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth, a remnant of will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Here we see mighty God. He's the God of the Old and New Testament. He is the God. Jesus is the God-man, deity who has put on humanity and come to dwell with us. And the incarnation is is the greatest of all miracles of the Christian faith. Think about it. J.I. Packer, who wrote an incredible book called Knowing God, that I would really recommend if you ever see it out, you can find it on Kindle, You should get it. Here's what he said. He said that the most supreme miracle of the Christian faith lies not in the Good Friday message of the atonement, nor in the Easter message of the resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man. The second person of the Godhead became the second man determining human destiny, the second representative head of the race, and he took humanity without loss of deity. 
so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. Incredible, isn't it? Incredible, mysterious, wondrous, miraculous. And there are aspects of this that I can begin to apprehend and talk about, but there are aspects of this that we may never fully comprehend. We may never fully be able to under, get our minds fully around. In fact, in the name the mighty God, we're exposed to three incredible mysteries of the Christian faith. The mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of the Incarnation, and the mystery of the Gospel. Let's start first with the mystery of the Trinity. The mystery of the Trinity. And that's what we're exposed to here because Trinity and Incarnation belong together. And the Trinity is a truth that is so foundational for us to begin to put the Bible together. And here's what the Trinity is. You'll see this in your notes. The Trinity is the reality that God is one being revealed in three distinct coexistent persons. That we have one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, one in essence, three in persons, one what, three whose. This is the doctrine that is meant to cause us to think carefully about what God says about himself. To think very carefully about what God has revealed in his word. And while you won't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible, you certainly will find the reality there. And the Trinity is best understood as three realities sort of put together. One doctrine with three sort of pieces to it. The first piece is that there is only one God. The Trinity begins with the reality that there is only one God. The Bible's pretty clear about that, right? Not three gods, but one God. I could go to a plethora of passages, but let me just give you three to think about. You can look first at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And before we read that, this is what the Jews would have called the Shema. And that comes from the Hebrew word that's for the word hear. There's the word Shema. And every little Jewish boy or girl would have grown up learning this verse. In fact, this is sort of the John 3.16 of Old Testament uh, believers. Every single one of them would have known the Shema. And it is so foundational. All of us should hear this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it was revolutionary in their day because polytheism was everywhere. People were worshiping all sorts of stuff. And this stood against that with a clear statement, there is only one God. And Isaiah picked this up in his preaching too. In fact, back in the book of Isaiah, you can look at Isaiah 43.10. Look what he says there. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I'm chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me was no God formed, nor shall there be any after me. None before, none after. One God. And Isaiah 44, 6, we see it again. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Clearly, besides me, there is no God. There is only one God. It's the first piece of sort of putting the Trinity together. Second reality we see is that there are three distinct persons who are called God. There are three distinct persons who are called God. And we could spend a ton of time on this, but let's just briefly consider this. First, the Father is God. The Father is God. And the Bible teaches this clearly. There isn't really a ton of debate 
in church history about the fact that the Father is God. But if you want a verse, consider the Lord's Prayer, where you have Jesus teaching us how to pray, and he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. It's a reality we see throughout the Old and New Testament. The Father is God. Second, the Bible teaches that Jesus, the Son, is God. That Jesus, the Son, is God. Doesn't Isaiah 9, 6 say that? That this child that would be born, that we know is Jesus of Nazareth, born in a manger, that he would be the mighty God. But this is something we see everywhere. Jesus knew this reality about himself, and he began to debate with the Jews of his day. And look what he said. This is in John chapter 8. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus is telling us a few things. First, he's telling us that all of the Old Testament was culminating in him, that all that Abraham saw and hoped for all the way back in the book of Genesis, Jesus would fulfill and bring to fullness. And then he drops the mic. He just drops the mic in front of these folks and says, before Abraham even existed, I am. Recall how Isaiah talks about how I am he He's speaking the way that God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush where he said, I am that I am is speaking to you. This is a clear statement that he is the I am, the eternal, the self-existent, the all-powerful, the unstoppable God of the universe out of Jesus' own mouth. He is God. And in case we're afraid of misunderstanding him, that's how the folks there understood him. Notice what they do. They pick up stones to stone him, which was what they did in that day when someone committed blasphemy. When someone had committed something that was blasphemous to God, they picked up their stones to throw at them. So they knew what he was saying. This is a confession the disciples and early apostles made as well. Think about at the end of John's gospel. you got a guy named Thomas, and sadly Thomas is always remembered for the fact that he doubted, right? He's doubting Thomas, and he says, I will only believe if I can physically see that Jesus rose again. I'll only believe it if I can see him for myself, his scars and everything right here in front of me. And Thomas got what he asked for. Jesus appears to him, and he cries out in a loud voice, My Lord and my God. There in John chapter 20, My Lord and my God. Thomas's confession is our confession, that Jesus is the Lord and the only true God. The New Testament letters speak of Jesus this way. Think of this from Paul, Titus chapter 2. Verse 13, look what Paul says. He says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There it is. Jesus is God. And Peter opens his second letter with these words. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. He opens his letter, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son, is God. The Father's God. Jesus, the Son, is God. Three distinct persons who are called God. Finally, the Holy Spirit tells, the, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And we've got to remember something. 
Sometimes we talk about the Holy Spirit like the Holy Spirit is the force from Star Wars. We just sort of talk about it like it's some, like we talk about the Holy Spirit like he is some sort of it, just some force that sort of shows up in the room. But the Bible tells us that the Spirit is a person. Throughout John 14 to 17, Jesus does a ton of teaching about the Holy Spirit. And he gives the Holy Spirit a personal pronoun of he. Let me give you one example. John chapter, or John chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is a person, not some sort of force. That, that just sort of hangs out somewhere. The Holy Spirit is a person and he is God. Recall, for example, in the book of Acts, you get a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they say, hey, we're going to sell our property and we're going to give all this money to the church. They already promised it to the early disciples. And then they sort of change their mind and go, well, they won't notice if we just sort of take some out of this that we promised to them. And what happens out of this is they were dishonest and they kept back money from themselves. And Peter finds out about their shady business deal. And here's what he says. Peter said, Ananias, why has the Holy Spirit filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourselves the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man... But to God. See that lied to the Holy Spirit? Lied to God. It's clear there the connection he's drawing. To lie to the Holy Spirit was to lie to God. This is so common throughout the Bible if you're looking for it. Two more verses to think about. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. We're we're told that we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see it? He's talking about, hey, we're going to grow more into Christ's image as we behold him in his glory and as we see him through the eyes of faith. And that this transformation comes from the Lord who is the Holy Spirit inside us. The Holy, Spirit is called, the Holy Spirit is called God explicitly, but it's also implied in a lot of places. For example, the Holy Spirit is said to have all the attributes that only God can have. For example, consider Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. Briefly, you'll see that it says he is the eternal spirit. No one is eternal truly, but God. He's the one who's never had a beginning and will never have in ending. While there's only one God, there are simultaneously three distinct persons who are called God, a tri-unity in God, a divine essence, one divine essence shared by three divine persons. And the third reality of the Trinity is that all three persons are co-existent and co-equal, or co-equal and co-eternal, co-equal and co-eternal. In other words, There's a common misunderstanding people have about the Trinity where they think, well, God just sort of takes on different forms or different masks. He can be the Father or the Son or the Spirit, depending on how he wants to come to us. But no, what the Bible is claiming is not that God takes different forms, but that at all times he is Father and Son and Spirit. It is not or 
but and one God in three persons. Consider some examples. All three persons of the Trinity were present and involved at the work of creation. Think about it. God the Father is there creating. We're told that the Word of God was what created the world and that that Word was Jesus and that the Holy Spirit was hovering upon the faces of the water. All three, peop- all three persons present from the very first page of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1. You can go home and read that later when you get a chance, but it describes how the Father and the Son and the Spirit are unified yet distinct in their work of salvation. And finally, even the way that we baptize points us toward the Trinity. Have you ever thought about that? He says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. A singular name, and then he gives you three persons after a singular name. There points us toward, and Isaiah 9-6 exposes us to the mystery of the Trinity. God is one being, yet three distinct persons. All equally God, all distinct in their personhood, but all one in their divine essence. This is the first mystery that Isaiah 9 exposes us to, but it exposes us to a second one as well, doesn't it? It exposes us to the mystery of the incarnation. The incarnation. Have you ever thought much about what it must have been like to be Jesus? Both fully God, the second person of the Trinity, yet simultaneously man, what it must have been like to be, as Isaiah 9, 6 says, mighty God, yet also a baby that would be born into the world simultaneously? How does all that work? And the church has thought for centuries and put a lot of work into this in the early days of the church, into thinking through and making sure they had the whole Bible to speak to these things and look at what the Scripture says. And here's the conclusions, I think, that are not only historical, but also biblical when we come to think about these things. That the mystery of the incarnation, you'll see in your notes, is that Jesus has two natures united in one person. Two natures united in one person. This means, first, that Jesus has a divine nature. Jesus has a divine nature. There's so many places I could go. I gave you a plethora of verses earlier that you can hang on to because Jesus is very God of very God. He's not a lesser deity, nor was he somehow created by the Father. John 1, though, I think is something we have to see. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. We know the Word to be Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God, and yet he was simultaneously With God, Jesus has a divine nature, and he decided in the plan of God and the plan of salvation that he would add to himself a human nature to become our Savior. Jesus has a divine nature, and he has, second, a human nature. And somehow, in the mysterious, miraculous, incredible plan of God, this wasn't some sort of subtraction. He didn't lose his deity at any point, but he simply took on humanity. He added a human nature to himself. Look, just right after John 1.1 is John 1.14. And look what he says there. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
We see Jesus throughout the Gospels experiencing hunger, weariness, pain, and suffering. He was truly human. This wasn't just some sort of appearance for him. He walked a truly human life with true flesh, true blood, a real body, real sufferings. And yet he was still the divine word even in the flesh. He was both divine and human. He had both natures, and these natures are united in one person. There's so much incredible mystery here on what must have been like for Jesus to have two natures in his one person. Think about it. Jesus was never divided. There's often questions people ask of, well, could, I mean, Jesus was fully man, and yet he was somehow being tempted, and yet he's God, so how could he have, have, have been truly, t- like, th- there's a ton of mystery here where we see a human and divine nature working together, how he could experience real suffering and temptation, yet not be overcome by it. Was Jesus ever divided? While the natures are not divided, there seems to be points in which these, these two natures are, 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 are at work. Like you see him in the Garden of Gethsemane going, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And you're like, what, is that? what does that mean? How does, that, how does he have a different will than what his father's wanting? And you see this experience between two wills and two natures that he's struggling within himself. Such incredible mystery. And each of these natures are united in such a way that we can speak about all of Jesus whenever we speak about each of them. Jesus knew what people were thinking. He could control sickness and the weather. He could raise the dead. And yet he got hungry and he slept. And he truly ate and slept. Humans are often ignorant. And so there were times Jesus would would say, hey, I don't know the hour of my father's return. He lived upon what God the Father would reveal to him often while he was on the earth. God is everywhere, and yet Jesus was in a body. And all of this humanness was never his divinity reduced, but often divine privileges restrained. Think about it. He could have known everything at all points, but... He decided to come and live a truly human life with all that that would have entailed. And and he remained fully God, but yet fully dependent on his Father. He says often throughout the Gospels that I do nothing by myself, but only what the Father says. And thus he chose to live his earthly life reliant, just as we're called to live reliant on God and on what he has revealed us. What an incredible mystery, but incredibly true. And finally, this brings us to the third and final mystery. We've seen the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of the incarnation, and finally, the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel. In the good news of what Jesus came to do for us, that word gospel just means good news, in that we see four incredible truths. Think about it. First, in the birth of Jesus, God the Son is born into the world. God the Son is born into the world. What incredible news. Think about it. The mighty God has been born to us. Isaiah 9, 6, that a child is born and his name shall be called Mighty God. And in true God-like fashion, he was born in the most miraculous way, wasn't he? We're told that he was born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7 tells us this in the opening of the book of Luke. 
talks about how the angel came to Mary and said, hey, you're going to bear a son, and she's going to go, I shouldn't be able to bear a son. I've not, been, I've not been with Joseph. There should be no way I should be having a child. And here's what the angel says to her. The angel says to the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. See again, the natural and the supernatural and all this. Jesus was born and all that entails with that, parents will understand what that means, all that's entailed with having a child. And yet he would be born of a virgin, a supernatural act of God. I don't know how we can even begin to fathom divinity coming to be with us in a womb of God living as a baby. You ever think about Jesus could have come as a fully grown man, done what he needed to do and carry on, and yet he chose to come and live a life from infancy all the way up until his adulthood? We can hardly fathom immortality taking on mortality but even taking on infancy, that's the wonder of Christmas. That the mighty God has been born to us. That the baby boy in Bethlehem was simultaneously the one sustaining all things. It's incredible. And the baby isn't the end of the story. Because the manger is always in the shadow of the cross. Isn't it? That Christmas is always preparing us for Easter, and that's the second mystery we see. That in the death of Jesus, God the Son dies for the sins of the world. That God the Son dies for the sins of the world. Consider with me Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This was likely an ancient creed or hymn that Paul is using to encourage the Philippians to humility. He's saying, live like Jesus lived. Be humble like he was. And he points to him this way. He says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Though he was God, he would give up many divine uh, equalities and privileges to be emptied. And by emptied, it means to take on the form of a servant, to be made in the likeness of man, to be a servant even to death on the cross. Friends, the great scandal isn't just that the Son of God would be born into this sinful world, but that he would die for this sinful world. He would die at the hands of sinners. The hymn writer put it best. I love this. "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. "'Tis mercy all, let earth adore, let angel minds inquire." No more. It's beyond finding out how incredible the love of God is. That for God so loved the world that he would send his only son, that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. All of this so that we could be in right relationship with him. All of this so that we could have eternal life. He who was rich became poor that we might be spiritually rich in him What good news that in the death of Jesus, the Son of God dies for the sins of the world. But his tomb isn't the end of the story either. 
He rises again on the third day. And then in the ascension of Jesus, God the Son rules over the world. God the Son rules over the world. Philippians 2 goes there next. Look at what Philippians 2.9 says. It says, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. That Jesus stands today as Lord of all, ruling and reigning from heaven over all creation. That he remains today truly God and truly man, glorified in his body and exalted in all things. Though he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, he is also the lion standing with the keys of the universe in his hands. And oh, to know that Jesus, who walked in our shoes and yet never sinned, is also the one ruling the world. Oh, what news to know that Jesus, we can find so much comfort here, and we can find encouragement to pray, because when we pray, we don't pray to one who is completely unlike us. But we pray to one who came to live a fully human life like us. Think about Hebrews 2.18, just briefly. Look at this, look at this. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Think about that. The God-man is really able and ready to help you today with whatever you're going through. Because he can say, I've been there. I've done it. You see how all of this theology builds down to such incredible encouragement. He's been there. He's walked in it. He's not ruling all things far away and disconnected. He's ruling as one who says, I understand. And finally, in the return of Jesus, God the Son recreates the world. In the return of Jesus, there's a day coming when Jesus will 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 put his feet down on this globe and recreate all things. And Philippians 2 looks forward to that day when it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That this is a reality, yes, now as people are saved and come to know Jesus and we confess him as Lord. But the Bible looks forward to a day when every tongue and tribe on earth will proclaim that Jesus is Lord. When the world will be recreated to a place where God's perfect will is done. You know how we often pray in the Lord's Prayer? Uh, Father, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. There's a day when he's going to go, Amen. And his will will be done everywhere at all times. And the God-man will rule over creation and over his kingdom, over the hope that the God-man is coming again one day. And friends, this has been a meal of God's word. As we've thought about such incredible truths that I think truly are applicable to your life. I hope you haven't thought of this as some ethereal discussion up here, but I hope I can bring this home to you with three applications for what you should do with this. What you should do with the mystery of the Trinity and the mystery of the incarnation and the mystery of the gospel. What do we do with these? First, these mysteries should call us to adoration. They should call us to adoration, to worship, to praise God for who he is, to come behold the wondrous mystery, to fall on our knees and to confess how great God is, to proclaim Romans 11, 
Verse 33, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who's been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Friends, this should call us to worship him and to worship and adore our triune God. Second, these mysteries should comfort us with assurance. So adoration and then assurance. All three persons of the Godhead were involved in your salvation. No matter how you met the Lord, all three of them are involved. Now I have Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 there that you can go home, maybe make that some, some Sunday afternoon reading for you to think about. But in there, we see that God the Father is the divine initiator. He mapped out the plan of salvation from beginning to end. And that the Son is the divine accomplisher coming to live and die to rescue us from our sins. And that the Holy Spirit is the divine applier coming to apply the work of the Son to our lives and draw us to Him. Friends, we can have confidence that we're in Christ and that we're believers and that the God who began His work in us will keep us to the end because it's been His work from beginning to end been his work from beginning to end he doesn't lose one in between those and finally these mysteries should confront us to acceptance should confront us with acceptance the most important question you can ever answer is who do you say jesus is that's the most important question you can ever consider jesus once came to his disciples and he said Disciples, who do men say that I am? And in our day, there are all sorts of answers that people would give about Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? All sorts of answers. But Jesus brought it home to his disciples, and he wants to bring it home by extension to us and go, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And what do you say? Is he simply a a good teacher because, friends, there's lots of good teachers in the world, but none of them ever claimed to be divine. Friends, he claimed he would die and rise again. Friends, he's not simply a prophet, because no prophet has ever spoken in such a way, or even simply a good moral example. He's so much more. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, uh, has a book called Mere Christianity, and in it, he, he confronts three things that people often believe, and, and he He's talking about it, and he says, well, the, the, really the results you have to do with Jesus when looking at his claims is either to say he was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. And friends, either he knew everything he was saying was false, and he was just deceiving folks, he was a crazy person, or friends, he's correct in everything he said, and he says one day you'll bow the knee to him, and you should be right with him today. Will we give our lives to Jesus and join with Peter and scores of other believers in confessing that you are Christ, the Son of the living God? This morning, if you do not know this Jesus, you can give your life to him. Place your faith, your trust, your hope in him. His sinless life, his death on the cross in your place, and his victorious resurrection from the dead. And he will save you from your sins. He'll meet you right where you are, with him, and his Holy Spirit will grab a hold of your heart. He'll forgive you of your sins, give you a new heart with new desires, and give you a hope and assurance of eternal life with him. If you'd want to meet this incredible, mysterious God, we've encountered in the word this morning, 
You call on him right where you are, and he'll meet you there. You can speak with one of us after our gathering's finished. And we'd love to introduce you to him and, and show you who he is. But we need to remember together, regardless of where we are, that the one we remember in this season is not just any baby. Some people put together their nativity scenes, and they don't really think about the fact that that little child you put in there, into the nativity scene, is the El Gabor, the mighty God. God has come from heaven to dwell with us and rescue us. Mysterious? Absolutely. Glorious? Absolutely. Who do you say he is? Let's stand together and let's pray. Father God in heaven, we have been confronted with incredible truths, truths that in many ways are beyond me and beyond our full comprehension or finding out, but I pray we have to some point apprehended them, and thought to to us at least some point understand as much as we can about you as one God in three persons, and as your Son has come to dwell with us. Oh, what incredible mysterious, wonderful realities it is that you've been born, you've died, you've resurrected, you've ascended, and one day you're returning again. If there's anyone within the sound of my voice, whether here in person or watching online, who doesn't know you, that you would in this moment convict them and draw them to yourself by your power. And I ask that we would just be awestruck at who you are, at what you do, and how you draw us to yourself. And for all you reveal in your word, Leave us in awe and help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.